as I'm sure you'll all recall, uh, a hurricane in September named Florence disrupted uh, our attempts and those of many others on the East Coast, forcing us to reschedule. Um, thank you, Mayor Stoney, for your leadership during that event, uh, preparing for such an emergency, and for um, agreeing to reschedule this event this evening. This year's forum series explores um, leadership issues during a time of deep political division, when democracy itself is being tested here and in other places. Now more than ever, we need effective and inspiring leadership. In an editorial published in the Richmond Times-Dispatch in September, Drs. Allison Archer and Thad Williamson, our faculty co-organizers of this year's forum, wrote, quote, strengthening democracy begins and ends with the engagement of ordinary citizens, unafraid to tackle big problems of their time. As the nation's first undergraduate school of leadership studies, Jepson is pleased to create a space in which these necessary conversations can occur. I hope you will, enjoy, uh, will join us for all of this year's forum events and share your thoughts and ideas on social media at, at Jepson School. And now I'm pleased to invite University of Richmond President Dr. Ronald A. Crutcher to the stage to uh, introduce tonight's speaker. LeVar Stoney. <laughs> Thank you, Dean Peart, and good evening. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the University of Richmond and tonight's Jepson Leadership Forum. As Dean Peart mentioned, the theme of this year's Jepson Leadership Forum asks the question, does democracy actually work? In fact, the forum is described as exploring, quote, the good, bad, and ugly of U.S. politics and government. Tonight, we'll examine all three, starting with the bad and the ugly. Voter disenfranchisement remains a very real problem in our communities. One need only read the news from the most recent elections. A July 2018 poll by the Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, indicates that American voters of all races believe that voter fraud and the influence of wealthy individuals and corporations are major concerns. However, white Americans are far less likely than black and Hispanic Americans to express concerns about eligible voters being denied the right to vote. Only 27% of white Americans say this is a serious issue, compared to 60% of Hispanic Americans and 62% of black Americans. Our democracy cannot flourish unless all Americans believe that their rights as voters and citizens are secure. The results of the PRRI survey reflect troubling differences that our nation must acknowledge and overcome. So that brings us to the good. Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney is a champion of voter and equal rights who has worked tirelessly throughout his career to ensure that all citizens can participate fully in our democracy. 
born and raised right here in Virginia and a product of the Commonwealth's public schools. He was the first in his family to earn both a high school diploma and a college degree from James Madison University. After serving as a governor's fellow under now Senator Mark Warner, he became the first African-American Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia and the youngest member of Governor McAuliffe's cabinet. As secretary, he was the driving force behind transforming the process that restored civil and voting rights in Virginia. He was sworn in as Richmond's 80th mayor on December the 31st, 2016, as the youngest mayor ever elected to serve our historic city. Mayor Stoney has initiated a number of long-term improvement projects aimed at transforming our community. He launched RVA Green to 2050 and issued a mayoral directive protecting rights of all immigrants in our city. He also created the Monument Avenue Commission, which, along with citizen input, will determine the best way to tell the full story of Richmond's Civil War history. Three members of our faculty, two of whom are in the Jepson School, are contributing to this very important commission. His first budget included a record-breaking investment in Richmond's public school students and also doubled support for the Office of Community Wealth Building. Under Mayor Stoney's leadership, Richmond has been named the number two place millennials are moving by Time Magazine and a top 25 place to live by US News and World Report. These are not mere accolades, but rather very strong endorsements of Richmond and the man who has been elected to lead us. We are delighted to have Mayor Stoney with us tonight to discuss the reality of voter disenfranchisement and very, very much look forward to his remarks. Please join me now in welcoming to the podium our Mayor, Mayor LeVar Stoney. Well, good evening, everyone. I want to begin by thanking uh, President Crusher for that kind introduction. Uh, I also want to thank his uh, beautiful wife, Dr. Betty Crusher, who joins him this, this evening. I also want to thank some of the distinguished faculty and staff here at the Jepson School of Leadership for this great invitation and for doing what great universities do convene diverse communities to explore important topics at a pivotal moment in our time. Some here may not know, but uh, uh, University of Richmond President Emeritus, Dr. Ed Ayers, uh, Dr. Julian Hader, who's here with us tonight, Dr. Laurenette Lee, all generously uh, volunteered their time and talents over the last year uh, to the city of Richmond to serve on the Monument Avenue Commission and Professor Dr. Thad Williamson was the director of my transition team following my election in 2016 and took his talents to City Hall while also having a load of courses here uh, at the University of Richmond. To all of you, I want you all to know I'm humbled to be here in your presence and grateful to your service to the City of Richmond as well. Thank you.
Finally, let me welcome the members of the Greater University of Richmond community who are here tonight and especially welcome the students, the leaders of tomorrow in whom we have placed so much faith and whose responsibility, responsibility it will be to chart a new future for our commonwealth. And isn't that the very important question this forum is designed to explore this year and consider this evening? What will the future look like? We live in a democracy, but does our democracy still work? So for those of you who have a test to study for tonight and need to be in class tomorrow morning, let me get to a short answer for you. Not as well as it could, not as well as it should, and not as well as it needs to be. Of course, the promise of democracy is that everyone's voice is heard. It is what distinguishes us from many other nations. Competition is healthy, and it is important that voters have choices and real choices that engage and invest people in the process of governing. Consider that China, home to 1.4 billion of the world's 7.6 billion people, has a president who is not popularly elected. And in Russia, Vladimir Putin was re-elected with 77% of the vote earlier this year. He beat the usual suspect, Vladimir Zirinovsky, who had run in five previous elections. Now, I don't know about you, but that's like going to watch the Harlem Globetrotters play the Washington Generals. You already know who's going to win, and you know it's going to be by a sizable margin. Our democracy and the opportunity embedded in that principle is what makes people from all over the world cross borders, jump in rafts, form caravans, and risk their lives to come here. Ultimately, they know that they will have the opportunity to have a real say, to realize self-determination. Americans do not wish to be ruled. We desire empowerment to govern. So tonight, I would like to talk with you about one of the biggest threats to our democracy, one that will determine whether it will thrive or just barely survive, the disenfranchisement of this democracy's voters. According to Stanford researcher Adam Bonica, there are 19.4 million Americans of voting age who are ineligible to vote for one reason or another. That's roughly the voting population of Texas. Now, disenfranchisement is nothing new in America. Let's not forget that this country's disenfranchised half of the population, all women, until 1920. Let me repeat, this country disenfranchised half of the population until 1920, all women. So yes, disenfranchisement has taken many forms over the years and goes back really to our founding documents. 
the founders, the founders failed to place a guaranteed right to vote in either the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Instead, they left it up to the states and local governments to control who voted, and leaders in those offices created thousands of different systems with their own rules and regulations to enshrine those who were in power and disenfranchise those who were not. In the South especially, members of the white ruling class were so concerned about maintaining the status quo that they began a systematic dismantling of the rights and freedoms of black people that had begun to flower after the Civil War. This flower was short-lived, basically only about a generation. Think about this. Virginia's Reconstruction Constitution of 1868 was written by 104 delegates, including 24 black men. It was led by John C. Underwood, a federal judge and abolitionist, and it guaranteed the right to vote for every male citizen at least 21 years old, regardless of race, uh, set up for, it set up a, a free public school system for both whites and blacks, and it established democratic elections for all levels of Virginia government. The only restrictions were set for people convicted of corruption or treason, participants in a duel, and I quote, idiots and lunatics. <laughs> so, corruption, treason, idiots and lunatics. Just imagine if that were the case today. <laughs> During Reconstruction following the Civil War, roughly 106,000 Amer African-American men were registered to vote in Virginia in 1870. And between 1867 and 1895, nearly 100 black Virginians served in the two houses of the Virginia General Assembly or the Constitutional Convention, Convention from 1867 to 1868. Of course, the white ruling class of Redeemer Democrats, yes, so back then, Democrats were the Republicans and the Republicans were the Democrats. They sought to put an end to this shift. As Library of Virginia historian Brent Tarter told the Washington Post, backward-looking white people were appalled at how fast things were changing. Their property was now writing them a constitution. But by the early 1890s, as Jim Crow and voter suppression took hold, which coincidentally was about the same time the first statues were erected on Monument Avenue, there were no more black legislators until 1968. 1968. Why? Well, the framers of the 1902 Virginia Constitution instituted poll taxes and literacy tests and felon disenfranchisement. According to an excellent article on felon disenfranchisement in Virginia in the Atlantic a couple of years back, uh, this was 
what convention delegate R.L. Gordon told his, follow, his fellow delegates at the time. Quote, I told the people of my county before they sent me here that I intended to discriminate every Negro that I could dis disenfranchise under the Constitution of the United States and as few white people as possible. That was his intention. So people had to pay a tax to vote between $25 and $50 in today's money unless you were a Civil War veteran in which that case you were exempt. Now we talk all the time about the grandfather clause. Well, here is where it comes from. If you could not read and did not own property, you were allowed to vote if your fathers or grandfathers had voted before 1867. Because practically no blacks could vote before 1867. The grandfather clause effectively disenfranchised all black people. And of course, people found guilty of a crime were also barred from voting. So they say that politicians have a tendency to bend the numbers sometimes. Well, Gordon said that because six whites out of 10,000 were in prison compared to 29 blacks out of 10,000, quote, since these people have been made free, instead of improving, the record of crime shows that they are retrograding. Retrograding. Future U.S. Senator and future Treasury Secretary Carter Glass was even more direct. When a fellow delegate at the 1902 convention asked if the steps being taken to disenfranchise black voters would amount to fraud and discrimination, Glass replied, by fraud, no. By discrimination, yes. But it will be discrimination within the letter of the law and not in violation of the law. He also stated that his plan would eliminate the darkie as a political factor in the state in less than five years so that in single, in any single county will be, will there be a fear at least to consider and to confirm the supremacy of the white people in the affairs of government. By the end of 1902, Jim Crow had removed all but 21,000 of the 147,000 blacks of the voting age from registration lists. By 1905, there were fewer than 10,000 African American registered in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And between 1905 and 1948, according to the Atlantic, state employees and office holders accounted for one-third of the votes cast, prompting the political scientist V.O. Key to say that by contrast, Mississippi was a hotbed of democracy. Many of the Jim Crow disenfranchising techniques were abandoned or overturned by the courts and federal legislation in the 1960s through, though 18-year-olds did not get the right to vote until 1971. In the modern era, we no longer have poll taxes and literacy tests, but the effects of Jim Crow and black codes are still alive and well in our commonwealth and beyond.
We have witnessed insidious and deliberate attempts across this country, and some most recently, to use existing state laws to disenfranchise Americans who should have the right to vote and substantial resistance to reforms that could vastly increase participation in our democracy. Voters in Georgia, which has been in the news lately, had to contend with a 2017 state law that allowed a voter to be denied for something as minor as a missing hyphen in their last name. This was overseen, though, by the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who just happened to also be running for governor. And five years ago in Virginia, with no concrete evidence of widespread voter fraud, the Republican-controlled General Assembly passed a law that requires people to present picture identification at the ballot box, a practice that has been shown to suppress the vote among low-income, people of color, the elderly, and the disabled. Our state laws also place unnecessary restrictions on absentee voting, requiring people to provide one of a series of 19 excuses that they must swear to under felony penalty as a reason they could not get to the polls on election day. 27 states do not require an excuse to vote absentee. Virginia is not one of them. Following the Supreme Court opinion in 2013 that struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, nine states that were formerly under advisory for prior discriminatory practices began aggressive purging of the voter rolls. According to the Brenner Center, Brennan Center for a Report on Racism and Felony Disenfranchisement, four million more voters were purged between 2014 and 2016 than in 2006 to 2008. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, <laughs> dissented in the ruling, saying that the court had the responsibility to hold states accountable for fighting voter disenfranchisement until all vestiges of Jim Crow disappeared. She said, throwing out preclearance when it, was, when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. You gotta love that RBG. <laughs> and most prominently, as a nation, we still discriminate and disenfranchise former felons. The era of mass incarceration in which this country is now smack in the middle of means this number has dramatically increased over the years. In 1976, it was 1.7 million people. In 1996, it was 3.3 million people incarcerated. 20 years later, as of 2016, according to the Sentencing Project, more than 6 million people are disenfranchised because of a felony conviction. Oh, and by the way, approximately 4.7 of them are not in prison. They are living and working and paying taxes in your neighborhoods. When you break it down by race, the estimate is that one in every 13 black people in America was barred from voting in 2016 due to felony disenfranchisement. 
as compared to one out of every 56 non-black Americans. In Virginia, nearly 8% of the population is disenfranchised due to a felony. That translates to nearly, that, tra that translates to about 22% of the African-American population in this state. Now this is something which I have a deeply personal connection, not only as a person of color whose race has been historically discriminated against, and not only as the former secretary of the Commonwealth who had the opportunity working alongside Governor McAuliffe to begin to, cor to correct some of the historical injustices that have been embedded in our laws. But I also come to you as a son of a former felon who was denied the right to vote for years long after he had paid his debt to society. I was raised in not too far from here, about in roughly an hour away in Hampton Roads by my grandmother, Mary Stoney, my father, Luther Stoney, and I loved two things growing up. It was football and, and politics. And I was lucky enough to have a father who could tell me I could do anything I put my mind to. And at an early age, I took to leadership. I ran for student council offices in elementary school. I was student body president in, in elementary school, in middle school, in high school. I've been at this a very, very long time. Also a student body president at college, James Madison, for two years. My first, one of my first posters stated, vote for Stoney, he's no phony. <laughs> so even then, I was telling folks, get out there and vote. Unfortunately, my father faced incredible barriers to participating in our democracy. He was a smart, hardworking man. I love him and miss him dearly. But a felony conviction kept him back, something he did in his early 20s, kept him back from participating. And because of that conviction, he had no civil rights. He could not vote. He could not sit on a jury. He could not run for office. And he could not get jobs that, ha that would have brought greater economic stability to our family, rather than have my brother and I depend upon free and reduced lunch at school. At that time, getting someone's rights restored was a very, very cumbersome process. My dad's conviction occurred in the state of New York and under the rules here in Virginia, uh, you follow the rules of your state. And my father was able to get his right to vote back a whole lot quicker because of it happening in New York. But. I think about those who were not as lucky as my father. It required for some people to do something totally different. First, the law required that you have to wait five years after you had completed your sentence and finished your probation and parole. Then it required that you had to pay all your court fines and restitution before receiving the right to vote back. Finally, it required the personal approval of the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, which could be secured only by completing a 13-page application that included testimonials and a personal essay for the, from the applicant. 
I uh, was able to get my dad's right to vote. And he participated in so many elections after that, particularly that of President Barack Obama. And he did not live to vote for another president thereafter. My dad died in 2011, and he never got to vote for another president. But in 2013, I was honored, the son of a former offender, and humbled to serve as the first African-American Secretary of the Commonwealth. And in case you didn't know what the Secretary of the Commonwealth did or does, we are responsible for reviewing, recommending, and recommending to the governor appointments to the various boards and agencies and commissions that run state government. And we were responsible for the review of applications and the reinstatement of one's civil rights. And boy, did the governor have a job for me. Virginia had already made progress in expanding and approving these restoration applications under Governors Warner, Kane, and McDonald. But Governor McAuliffe asked me to go a step further. Now, you may not know uh, Terry McAuliffe the way I do, but he is intensely competitive. And he wanted to make sure that we restored the rights of more Virginians than any previous governor combined. <laughs> Tall tasks. So that's exactly what we did. First, in April 2014, we streamlined the restoration form from 13 pages to one page. A year later, in 2015, we lifted the restriction that required felons to pay off their court costs and fees before they had their rights restored. And you know, they say that you don't realize how valuable something is until you lose it. I'll never forget that day. The joy on people's faces when that thing that had been taken away, missing for so long, and the smiles that came across their face, this speaks to the fundamental value and worth of a person and how they feel about the society they live in, the ability to participate. At one of these restoration rallies and meetings, I remember a woman by the name of Ellen Tamaye from Portsmouth. She uh, somewhat trapped me as I was leaving the event and she questioned me and queried me about why can I have my rights restored even though I have not paid off my court costs. She had paid her restitution. She, was, she received a felony for a number of bad checks. She paid off the restitution, that was about $24,000. She had started her own business because no one else would hire. And then, she still owed $40,000 in court costs and fines. She said, at this rate, Mr. Secretary, I won't be able to participate until 2040. I may not even be alive. I can hope and pray that my grandchildren have the right. Well, after we reformed one part of the process, I had the great fortune to call Ellen up right before the press conference and say to Ellen, today, Governor McAuliffe is going to restore your right to vote. She cried. She screamed. She was driving at the time. I said, you need to pull over. She pulled over. We talked a little bit more. 
And here's the great thing about showing one's worth and as a participant in this democracy. She could have said, I've received the right, and this is for me and me only. And instead, she got a, one of those card tables out, she set up in front of her church, and she registered people for 10 hours that day to get their rights to vote back. That is what so, could be so empowering about democracy. My last act before I left the administration to run for mayor was working with Deputy Secretary Kelly Thomason, who's the current secretary, on what became a blanket restoration of rights for more than 200,000 disenfranchised felons who have completed their sentences and parole periods in Virginia. Republicans, led by House Speaker Bill Howe, challenged this order. And the Virginia Supreme Court said we, could have, we would have to restore the rights individually and could not do this in mass. So Governor McCall did exactly that. He signed each and every one of those orders restoring one's right. And by the time he left office in 2017, he had signed restoration orders for more than 172,000 Virginians. And that process continues today. That process continues today under Governor Ralph Northam. Research we've done suggests that somewhere over 40,000 of these newly enfranchised citizens registered to vote. And a 2016 study by the governor's office showed that 46% of all the newly restored citizens were African American. Ladies and gentlemen, the right to vote is more than the chance to fill in an oval. It is a measure of our value of each other as people. It is the pathway to change the government we don't like and make a government to which we aspire. It is a part of the DNA of what it means to be a full citizen in our democracy. You've heard it said before, across the world people fight and die for the right to vote. In this country, people have fought and died for the right to vote. That's a fact. So it is always troubling to me when we don't respect this sacred right the way we should. The right to vote is mentioned only five times in the United States Constitution. Yet states and courts still treat it as a privilege. Now compare the way they treat the right to vote to the right to bear arms. Think about that. Much has been made about the fact that this last midterm election was the highest voter turnout nationally for a midterm in the last 50 years. It was 49%. 116 million people voted and 120 million did not vote. You had Taylor Swift and Rihanna out there telling, begging Gen Zers and millennials to go to the polls and get out there to vote. But guess what? Of 18 and 29 year olds, only a third voted. Two thirds stayed home. You know, Pew did a study 
and which it ranked the 35 developing nations by a percentage of voting age population that vote. And the United States of America ranked 26. Now, eight of those nations, like Belgium and Australia, have compulsory voting. But 87% of Swedes cast ballots. And Danes and South Koreans and the Dutch, Germans, French, Italians, and British all vote in greater percentage than we do. Even here in Florida, where my friend and fellow mayor, Andrew Gillum, ran a great race for governor, 54.3% voted, and 6.9 million people never made it to the polls. Friends, you can't vote the bums out if you don't vote. It does, that's not how it works. Democracy is not a spectator sport. You have to get in the game. Now, there are a lot of legitimate reasons that keep people from the polls, and we certainly have work to do, but here in Virginia and across the country, we're still taking some steps. Of, rich, of registered voters who did not vote in 2016, Pew found that 42% did not vote because of a variety of reasons. 14% said that they were too busy or had a conflict. <laughs> you can't make this up. 12% cited illness or disability. 8% were away or out of town. 3% cited transportation difficulties. And 2% said the polling place was somewhere just too inconvenient to reach. And a recent Maris and NPR poll found that 40% of us don't think elections are fair, as was mentioned by Dr. Crutcher. And you know what? In certain places, they're not. Remember back to the founding fathers fumble from the beginning, remember that? The one where they didn't enshrine the guarantees for the right to vote in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights? Well, across this country, we have local legislatures controlled by one party or another, and every 10 years they get to draw the districts in which they run and your congressmen run. As a result, in many districts, the incumbent candidates choose their voters, not the other way around. This is no way to run a democracy. So what are we gonna do about it? Oh, I've got a few ideas. For one, we must push for nonpartisan redistricting. This is something my friends over at Virginia, One Virginia 2021, have been working towards, and I am a member of their board. Fairly drawn districts will produce fair and competitive elections and elect public servants who reflect the populations they serve. Next, we must, we must make it easier easy for, as easy as possible for all people to participate. When it comes to access, statistics show that roughly 62% of white voters live less than 10 minutes from the polling place, as opposed to just over 40% of African Americans and Latino voters. In the city of Richmond this year, we provided free transportation on GRTC within city limits to remove the barrier of transportation to the polls. I also worked with a nonprofit, Inspire USA, 
to go into all of our public high schools and encourage voting age students to register to vote right on the spot. But there are many more ambitious things we can and should do that will make a significant impact. We must, we must eliminate the need to provide an excuse for voting absentee in the Commonwealth of Virginia. 37 states and the District of Columbia already allow no excuse absentee voting in person, 27 allow it by mail, and Virginia should be one of those states. We must repeal the vote suppressing 2013 photo ID requirement, period. It must be repealed. This disproportionately impacts the poor, people of color, disabled, and elderly. And we must remove the need for gubernatorial approval and enshrine in the Constitution of Virginia the guaranteed right to vote for all people, everyone. So there is hope. And ladies and gentlemen, I am in the hope business. I am in the hope business because after I saw Donald Trump lose the popular vote by 3 million and win the presidency by fewer than 80,000 votes spread over three states during the Electoral College, I then saw an unprecedented number of women candidates take up the call to serve and change the toxic culture that he has created and lead a resurgence that restored a balance of power to Washington with a 39th seat pickup in Congress. Uh, I'm in the hope business because just a little farther south in Florida, more than 64% of voters, Democrats and Republicans, approved Amendment 4 and 1.4 million people now have the right to vote. I'm in the hope business because I saw a 174% increase in Latino vote this year from, two, from 2014, and increases, although far from where we need to be, in participation all across the board. And I'm in the hope business because I believe that our future lies in addition and not subtraction. Think about it. I'm the mayor today, I'm the son of a former felon in a city where that was once the capital of the Confederacy, where every effort was made to make sure that someone who looks like me will never go to school, never get the opportunity to vote, and definitely not sit in City Hall as the mayor of the city of Richmond. I got involved in politics and government, government to right wrongs and give a voice to the voiceless. And I can think of no better way to honor that commitment and to build a stronger city, state, and country than to do everything we can to make sure everyone's voice is heard at the ballot box. That is the challenge and the responsibility that we have as citizens of a democracy that is to enfranchise. The United States of America is not a privately held corporation or some plaything for the privilege. This is for the people, by the people. 
That's who we are. So it is a sacred pact among its citizens that embraces the time-honored ideals of equality, justice, and freedom. This is bigger than any of us, but doesn't work without all of us. So my message tonight is change is on the way, and we have to go out there and make it happen together. Thank you. Thank you.